Good morning, church. A couple observations I made this morning I'd like to bring your attention to. One was the joy that was going through this place, uh, the, the break for greetings each other, and just the laughing, and it, it takes a while for everybody to settle down. It's, it's kind of cool. I kind of like that. And the other thing is the call to prayer up front. Um, it, is, it is a blessing, for sure, to be involved with a body that prays for one another. And there's absolutely no shame in asking for prayer for anything that you're going through. Um, I know recently we've had a lot of prayer poured out on us, and it is greatly appreciated and needed. So as the leaders are gathered around different places in the church after service, if you need prayer for anything, please don't hesitate. So now I get the blessing of reading the blessed bees, I like to call them. So we're reading in chapter 5 of Matthew 1 through 12. I apologize if they're going to put words up. I'm reading out of the NIV, so it's going to be completely different. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because, you're, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Lord, we just lift our hearts to you. We ask, Lord, that you would soften our hearts, that you would help us to have hearts that are pliable and ready to accept all those things that you have for us. Lord, we pray that you'd open our eyes to see the needs of others around us, that you'd help us, Lord, to strengthen them and help them in their walk. Lord, we pray especially for the kids in this body, Lord, that are growing up and we're trying to instill in them all the faith that they'll need to get through this world. And Lord, we pray, of course, for the teachers, that they would be able to teach um, in accordance with your will and your ways. And we say this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, kiddos, you can be dismissed. Well, as we come together this morning to look on the Sermon on the Mount, I'm sure you guys all already know it all. And when it, to me, whenever we come to a section of Scripture we know well, it's the most dangerous time ever. Because we, we sometimes are so certain that we fully grasp what God's Word is laying out. I, I'm amazed. I've, I've been... I have been teaching the word for 25 years, and I still 
find things. God's word is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And it will continue to open our eyes and uh, speak to us. Even in the sections of scripture we are maybe most familiar with. The Sermon on the Mount runs from chapter 5 all the way through chapter 7. We're not finishing it today. Here's another shock to your system. We won't make it to verse 12, just so you know. Maybe five. We'll see. We'll see how it's going. But it's not so we can just make an effort to see how slow we can go. One of the primary abilities to develop within us the uh, the ability to provide proper interpretation is to take time in observation that means you got to slow down and look at what's going on don't jump over the the things that are laying there scripture i think the scripture the proper hermeneutic to come to the scriptures a hermeneutic is a is the fancy word for how we should study. And that is that we should spend more time in observation than we spend in interpretation. The Bible, I would argue, has one interpretation. It means one thing. It says one thing. It wants us to, to understand what the author was penning and his point and purpose. But there are many applications And if we don't take our time to observe, we will jump to an interpretation which will give us bad application and we end up with what we call bad doctrine. You guys ever seen anybody with that before? Happens, right? So we want to try to take the time to kind of enjoy the scenery. One of the things I like about watching The Chosen, you know, I'm I'm sure there's... Things we can nitpick over the chosen with, and and you're welcome to come uh, tell me all about it. It's okay. But the, one of the things that it does is it takes its time. You know, most of the time somebody makes a movie on the life of Jesus, it's just, you know, one particular period they're focused on. But this, they're not in a hurry. I appreciate that. And there's a fair amount of speculation, but I'm okay with speculation. I like to, to ask myself, I wonder if, you know, in those areas that the Scripture doesn't lay out for us. But there's a lot of places the Scripture does tell us what's going on, and we get in a rush, and we make interpretation, I think, that, that avoids what's going on. So when we look at this section, Matthew 5 through 7, I'm going to call it the... Discourse on discipleship. This is what discipleship looks like. And the discourse will accomplish its goal. You go through the discourse on discipleship and you say, I got all this nailed. Then you miss the point. The discourse on discipleship should drive home the point. That we cannot do this apart from Christ. That we need him working in our life. It is for now, not for later. It is something that should should drive us. There's been a lot of varied interpretations when people come to the Sermon on the Mount. 
One group might say, this is what it looks like to be saved. So you obey these rules, and you'll go to heaven. Another group might say, no, this is the way to peace, and all the nations of the world should bow to the Sermon on the Mount, and there would be peace on earth. Another group would say, well, you know what? The Sermon on the Mount doesn't really work for today. But one day, there will be a day when Jesus returns and we'll see the reality of this. And I don't think any of those quite have nailed what it is that Jesus is doing in this. I think when Jesus spoke the Sermon on the Mount, here as we're reading it in Matthew, I think he did it all at once. He shared this as a, this was a, a large discourse, period of teaching, but it's not the only time he ever said these words. He's going to share this, I believe, over and over again. He's got three years of ministering and teaching. Every good preacher repeats ground over a sermon that especially has impact. Think of yourself. How many times have you shared your testimony? Told people about what Jesus has done in your life? How many times have you spoke about the things for which you are passionate? I hope it's about Christ. Maybe it's about football. I don't know, but. There are things for which we're passionate that we repeat over and over again. If you don't know which things you repeat, ask your kids. They'll tell you, won't they? Dad, you told me this already. I know, but I'm pretty sure you weren't listening. So I'm going to repeat it some more. I think Jesus shared this a lot. And I think the purpose, the theme of this section is righteousness. The theme, I think, is righteousness. This, the word for righteousness, there's a couple different words for righteousness. 646 times in the Bible. That's a lot of times, right? Uh, the principles of the righteousness of God is the primary focus on the book of Romans. We, when we look through the book of Romans, 231 times it's mentioned in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, here's what Jesus is going to say. It's going to be a little earth-shattering to those who are sitting there before him. He says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So he's letting them know, Matthew 5, verse 20, those people that you idolize and think are the most righteous, your righteousness is going to have to be better than that. Jesus is going to tell those guys they are whitewashed tombs full of dead man's bones, that they look good on the outside, but inside there's a problem. People, mankind struggles with this idea. We struggle with the idea that evil or wickedness is something out there and it's going to infect me. That's the wrong way to look at it. Evil or wickedness is in here. And it affects everything I touch if it's not dealt with. I am separated from God in my natural state. I am darkness. He makes me light. And so he wants them to understand it's not about outward. So when we're looking at this 
this text and you're, you're trying to have some type of outward confirmation to the ideas that we're going to be talking about, you, you might be missing the boat. This is about an inward transformation and a need for that inward transformation. Because if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, he will change you. Amen? He doesn't leave us like we were. We were once darkness, now we are light. We were once children of wrath, now we are children of God. That, that speaks to a change, right? A change in nature has occurred. And it's not something I did by an outward observance. It's something that God did inside of me. And so we want to understand. He's, he's focused. We know the Bible tells us in Genesis, Abraham believed God and it was accredited to him as righteousness. So we come... By faith, understanding this theme, this theme of righteousness. The religious leaders of the day, they had something that was artificial, something that was external. They wore the right clothes. They were righteous clothes. They had the right haircut. That was a righteous haircut. They, they drove the right donkeys. They were the righteous donkeys, whatever. The things that they had was all external, but the righteousness that Jesus is describing is true Vital and internal. Jesus said that it's out of the heart the mouth speaks. Do you remember? These things flow out of our heart. Now, if you have ever had reason to be shocked by the things coming out of your own mouth, it should remind you, oh, I still have spots. Uh, I know that Christ has cleansed me. I know that I am being trans, uh, uh, translated in Christ. He is making a new creation. I know that the work is ongoing. I look forward to the ending of it. I look forward to the glorification which will occur on the day when I see him face to face. I look forward to all these things. But I recognize that God has changed my life. That God has changed the way I see things. He has turned my eyes off of the things of this world and onto the things that he says. So now when I hear him speak of this true righteousness in this section, Matthew 5 through 7, I hear him talk about that righteousness and I'm so blown away by how many different places I go, wow, I, I can't do that, I haven't done that, and and. I recognize my need for more reliance on him and less reliance on me. For he must increase and I decrease. <clears throat> we want to recognize this. Now, he's going to begin this message to his disciples. He's standing outside the Sea of Galilee. If you've ever come with us to Israel, we go to what's called the Mount of the Beatitudes. We go to the area. Nobody knows the spot. One spot's as good as any spot. It's a, a mountain by the Sea of Galilee where Jesus would be able to speak. And he, he draws his disciples. But by, by the time it's over, there's a multitude there. Because Isaiah 55 says that the word of God will not go forth 
useless or vain. It will accomplish what it's sent to do. And here's what I want you to understand. This whole section, we're going to break down an outline in a minute. This whole section is the Word of God giving commentary on the Word of God. There's not a be- If Jesus is giving comment to Old Testament scriptures, we should listen, right? He's going to say in this section, you've heard it said, but I say to you. When he says, you've heard it said, he's saying, you've heard it said in the word of God, and I, God the word, say to you. He's giving comment as to the point, the heart of the law, the concepts behind the, the contrast that he's going to be developing. And he wants us to recognize. He's going to do this throughout this whole section. Because we know that our conduct will flow out of our character. And a character that has not been transformed by Christ will not produce righteousness. Faith is the root Works are the fruit. Works aren't the root. Faith is that we believe. The works that flow out of our life, the righteous deeds by which the bride of Christ is cleansing herself in the book of Revelation, those righteous deeds are the fruit of the work, the transforming work of Christ in our life. And they're the things he's going to be discussing here. These group of people were astonished. And in uh, Matthew 7, 28, as we wrap up this section, it says, when, Gen- when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Luke would say, because he taught as one having authority. Because he's the word of God telling us what the word of God is all about. So we want to recognize the reality of these things. We want to recognize that sometimes we will, people will use their systems to interpret Scripture. And that's sometimes what we're grasping for, right? We're grasping for, how should I look at this? Well, if I'm a dispensationalist, I'm going to look at this and say, well, this is for the kingdom. But if I'm a, a Calvinist, I'm going to look at this and I'm going to, have another, I'm going to allow my system to define interpretation. I don't want to do that. I want to let the word tell us what the word's saying. And I don't want to put on a special pair of glasses that say, this is how I have to see it. I want to go, okay, here is what he says. I, I'm looking at this section. My interpretive viewpoint is that this, that Jesus is teaching, is the fancy word for it is inaugurated eschatology. Can anybody spell that? Let me tell you an easier way to say it. Already and not yet. There's aspects that we're going to experience now. We'll see it in the Beatitudes. There are promises in the Beatitudes that are for now. And there's promises that are now and future. That there's a taste now. But a fulfillment that we're looking forward to. Does that make sense? So the idea that, that we're looking for these things to come together. Now the structure, the way this whole section, one giant sermon. You're saying, Jackie, your sermon's longer than the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know if that's true. How long it take you to read chapter 5, 6, and 7? We'll see. But it certainly won't take as long as we'll be in it. We will be in it for six months probably. But 
But <laughs> you think I'm joking. No. <laughs> we'll see. But as we look at it, here's, here's kind of the outline I want us to understand. Okay, the Sermon on the Mount put together the introduction. We have the Beatitudes and the salt and light metaphors. Okay, those kick it off. We're going to start looking at those today. We'll, we should wrap those up by next week. Then Matthew 5, 17 through 20 provides the thesis statement, right? The righteousness, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. So that section deals with the greater righteousness uh, required of a disciple of Jesus Christ. Then Matthew 5, 21 through 48, we're going to have Jesus teaching on the law built around six antithetical statements. I know, fancy words. That's the ones where Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. You guys are familiar with that, right? We all know, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery already. You guys familiar? So that'll be the, that next section um, where, that we have in Matthew 5, uh, 21 to 48. Then Matthew 6, 1 through 18 is going to contrast true and hypocritical righteousness, meaning... He's going, to, he's going to point out the scribes and the Pharisees. We're going to have sayings like, you know, whitewashed tombs full of dead man's bones. We're going to see things where Jesus is going to say, they look right, but they're not right. This looks right, but it's not right. He's going to talk about when you give, don't let your right hand see what your left hand is doing. You guys familiar with the ideas? He's going to talk about the not getting praise from men, but getting your praise from God. This is the section in, in Matthew 6, 1 through 18. In Matthew 6, 19 through 34, he's going to talk about social issues and commands regarding money, our attitude toward money and what's true riches, right? You guys know that section. That's where you're going to hear, seek ye first the, and all these things will be added unto you. Oh, see, you guys are familiar with this, right? Matthew 7, 1 through 12 is going to give us commands on how to treat one another. And Matthew 7, 13 through 27 are the scariest part. Going to give us three possible, uh, or three illustrations to two possible responses. Either you follow or reject. And, and what takes place on each one. So that will begin the journey. That's the introduction to what we're going to be looking at in, in Scripture today. So let's kick it off. The discourse on discipleship beginning in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. So seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now this was the, the way that the disciples would know that it was time for the teacher to speak. We do it the other way. Right? I stand, you sit. They did it flipped. You stand, I sit. So then you would be much more frustrated by my long sermons that way, wouldn't you? So when he sat, when he took this posture, his disciples knew, oh, okay, he's getting ready to teach. And so he begins, and I want you to see who's he talking to, his disciples. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean the 12, but in Matthew, by chapter 5, you haven't seen the calling of all the disciples. It's Matthew chapter 10 when you'll see all the disciples, all 12. But most guys would say at this point, all the disciples are there. Matthew's um, 
writing, there's a purpose behind Matthew's writing, and the chronology may not be part of it. In other words, he's going to talk about the calling of the other disciples, but by the Sermon on the Mount, this discourse for discipleship, if you want the manifesto from the Messiah, this he gives out So at the beginning of it. You've seen a couple of disciples called. Here's what discipleship is supposed to look like. Here's the walk that, that we should see, the reflection of Christ in our lives, lived out before mankind. And so he sits, they gather, all the disciples are there, but it's probably more than the twelve. And we certainly know by the time we get to the end of chapter 7, there's a multitude of people there that are blown away by the way Jesus is teaching because he is not saying, you know, Rabbi such and such says, or like we might do. Maybe we quote Spurgeon or we quote some old dead guy. That's what I used to call him in Bible college. We would quote some old dead guy to back up whatever we're saying. Jesus doesn't do that. He just says, I say... Because he's the word of God. John 1, right? In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. That phrase means the word was face to face with God. Jesus Christ is God, the Father's expression, revelation to mankind. In fact, we have a whole book called the what? Revelation of who? Jesus Christ. It's not a book of revelations. It is a revelation of who? Jesus It's Jesus. Hebrew says that the Lord spoke in times past through the prophets. He has in these, the last days, spoken to us, wrapped up what he had to say in his son. When the disciples are gathered around Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration and Peter starts talking because that's what Peter does. Peter has to talk because if it's quiet, it's a problem. You guys feel the awkward silence when you're talking amongst yourself all the women are looking at me like i've never seen that before (laughs) unless i'm talking to my husband okay (laughs) guys know what this is we we sit around and we're talking and we're talking and we're talking and then it, it just gets quiet there's nothing wrong with that but for peter there was something wrong with it i gotta say something uh and if you've ever felt the pressure of i've got to say something because it's quiet then You know what it's like to be Peter. And occasionally you say the wrong thing. So Peter says, we should build three tabernacles to to Moses and Elijah and Jesus. And then God speaks from heaven. This is my beloved son. Hear him. That's God the Father saying, shh, listen to Jesus. Just listen to him. The revelation of God. So here you have the word of God sitting down, disciples gathering, not just the 12, but any who might be hearing him say, come follow me. And they're starting to to toy with the idea. In fact, at the time of the passion of the Christ, there, there are estimates that the disciples following Jesus were as many as 120 so, so there are a lot of people who at various times will follow him, and that group will grow. In John chapter 6, when Jesus gives the teaching of, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me, a lot of people left. You remember Jesus looks at his disciples and says, are you leaving too? And they say, where else will we go? Who else has words of life? This is my beloved son. Hear him. 
God's revelation to us is Jesus Christ. And when he begins to teach, his disciples gather to listen. We want to hear what it is that he has to say. It says in verse 2, so he opened his mouth and he taught them. He opens his mouth. He's going to lay out for us. This next section is the Beatitudes. Now, there will be some arguments. There, there are eight Beatitudes or there are nine Beatitudes. There are nine blessed R's. But the question is, the very last one may be a, a, uh, uh, attached to the one before it. So we'll see it when we get there. So some say there's eight Beatitudes. Some say there's nine. It's nothing to fight about. It's just how you want to count them. And the first one and the last one are the same. So they create bookends. And then all the ones in between those use the same. They use the same grammar. I'm, I'm going to point it out in a minute. So we see the bookends that are establishing for us what we call the Beatitudes. What we want to understand as the Beatitudes. So he began... In verse 3, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is now the kingdom of God. The last one, if you look at the, by last, I'm talking about the eighth one, it's going to say the same, it's going to use the same grammar. It is present tense. Everyone in between is future the tense is future doesn't mean that it's not for now we'll talk about that obviously as we get to the second and the third one but right now blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of god not it will be the kingdom of god not they shall be the kingdom of god it is the kingdom of god theirs is the kingdom of god when we look at this we want to understand blessed are the poor now there have been endless sermons and so you guys are welcome to check out any of those. The Bible, the Lord could have used any of two. There's two words for poor. There's one for the basic word for poor, like I don't have any money poor. And there's one for the homeless guy on the street who really has literally nothing at all. That's the word used here. It's not just poor, like I, I, I'm, I'm a little short. I can't buy lunch today. This is being absolutely destitute. In other words, zero. You can contribute nothing. This is the poor in spirit. And it goes beyond the idea of the physical realm because he adds that phrase, right? Blessed are the poor where? In spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. This is talking about our attitude toward ourselves and it deals with our resistance to pride you guys know that god hates pride it's a little weird you know currently the big push in our world today and i hear it all the time too that uh i need to spend some time working on myself you guys ever heard that before i, I gotta fix me i can't really learn to love you until i learn to love myself now that that's not a biblical teaching. The biblical teaching is we think about ourselves a lot. 
And when by pride, I'm not saying I'm not saying that that you are, you know, pride can simply be thinking about yourself more than you think about anything else. Your thoughts may be negative, but you're still thinking about yourself. You guys get what I'm saying? So self has become central. That's not poor in spirit. There's an abundance of, of thought and attitude that is coming toward it. And in fact, Jesus here in these Beatitudes is quoting from the Old Testament. We're going to look at a few sections. Psalm 113, verse 5 uh, through 8 says, Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor. This is that word. The absolute destitute. He raises the poor from the dust, lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them to sit with princes, with the princes of his people. This is Psalm 113 is like the psalmist writing about, hey, who's like the Lord? The Lord's incredible. He takes us, even though we are destitute, we have nothing that we can contribute, and he lifts us up and he makes us kings and priests to rule together with him. With his people. And here you have the son of God taking from Old Testament scriptures. Concepts of Old Testament scriptures. And he says blessed are those who know themselves to be destitute in the spirit. Because theirs is the kingdom of God. Because the person who does not know his need for a savior. Does not reach for a savior. He thinks he'll save himself. Just give me some time. I can fix myself. Anybody ever tried to fix themselves? I'm the only one. <laughs> Man, fixing myself was not good. I know Myself, my core, my nature, I'm a wretch. I don't have a hard time saying it because I know the things I've done. And I look at those things and I, I don't see any way to self-redeem myself from those things. I can't look at those things and go, okay, I'll make myself better by, by having this haircut or not touching those things or not standing with those people. None of those, I recognize, none of this is going to help me. I'm a wretch. Apart from Christ, I'm a wretch. Blessed are the poor in spirit because they're reaching for something beyond themselves. Because there is no name under heaven by which men must be saved. It is at the name of Jesus Christ. But if I think I can clean myself up, I often tell people who, you know, off, oftentimes people will come to my office and they'll, they'll share with me, you know, Jackie, I, I don't know, man, I, I, a lot of times they say they relate to me a lot because they're dirtbags too. And uh, so, so Calvary Chapel Buell is a church for dirtbags, run by dirtbags, <laughs> who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And praise the Lord are not dirtbags anymore. 
but it were not, it's not because of some paint I painted on the outside. It is simply because I did what Jesus said. Two men, Jesus said, came to the temple to pray. One man came and he knelt down and he said, Lord, I want to thank you that I'm not like that guy. That guy is a tax collector and a sinner. I thank you that I am pretty good. And I've got my life together and I've done this and I've done that. But the Lord said, the other guy, he fell on his face before God and he beat his breasts. And he said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that one left righteous. That's the same word for justified. That one left righteous. That one left justified. Why? Because he was poor in spirit. Do you get it? Blessed are right now, the blessing right now upon all those who know who they are. In Christ Jesus. I know I am poor in spirit. Psalm 34, 18, it says, The Lord is near to those who are brokenhearted. And he saves those who are of a contrite spirit or a crushed spirit. Why is their spirit crushed? Because you know who you are. There are times when I think about choices I made in life and... Uh, I am overwhelmed. Still, I'm old. A lot of the stuff I done, not that I don't, I'm not saying I never sin, but I, I was better at it when I was younger. And I still can't sleep at night because of things I did as a young man. They, they, you know, they, those are the darts the Bible talks about. The enemy throws them, flicks them darts. They stick you. In the brand, I'm always thankful. There's a couple of guys who are really faithful about texting me that they're praying for me or give me encouraging scriptures or whatever. And I know some people think, well, he's a preacher. He don't need any of that. Yeah, I, I, I like it every time I get it. Because you never know what fiery darts are being chucked in the darkness, right? But the Bible says the Lord knows those who know who they are. I know I'm a sinner. I am a murderer. I have took innocent life. Me. I did it. There's nothing glorious or exciting about any of those things. It just shows me who I am. And you guys, some of you guys know the same thing. You have thoughts in your mind. You said, if these people really knew who I was, they wouldn't be excited about sitting next to me. That's probably true. (laughs) But the Bible says you're blessed. Because yours is the kingdom of God. Because a man who knows who he is knows he needs the Lord. Psalm 41 Blessed is the one who considers the poor. The day of trouble, the Lord will deliver him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. And you do not give him up to the will of his enemies. What does that all look like? I'm I'm not trying to make it complicated. I just want you to think about it. 
I hope it's not complicated because in Matthew 18, this is what it should look like. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You know, I'm better, right? Because I, I, I shook more people's hands. I, I'm better because I'm closer to Jesus. You know, he keeps me close. Peter, James, and John arguing over who's the greatest. In verse 2 it says, And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst, and he said, Truly, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Does that sound complicated? It's not complicated. It's simple. It's simple enough that a child can do it. He gives clarification in verse 4. Whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Did you catch the first word? Humbles himself. Humility, I think, is founded in the concept of knowing who you are. Not being self-deceived. Honestly, truly, knowing who you are. The Bible challenges us, well, well, we'll take a look at it in a moment, but the Bible challenges us, us to use that humility in the purposes that God has, has for us. We see it in the very next one, Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn for, look at the future tense, they shall be comforted. There's a sense in which we have comfort now, yes, certainly we do, but there's a more fuller sense of comfort coming. Agreed? All these beatitudes in the middle are going to be focused on that reality. They shall be. What is this? Blessed are those who mourn. What is this all about? Now there will be a lot of people who will say, well, this is mourning over your sin. Maybe that's a good Sunday school answer. I don't know. I think he's just talking about mourning. Anybody ever had this world put you to tears? What about life? Anybody ever had life put you to tears? Anybody ever felt like just giving up, throwing it all to the sky, chucking it to the air, saying, that's it, I'm out, this is stupid? When the Bible uses the word mourn, the word for mourn here is a word that, that is a, about a person mourning for the loss of their friend or family member, how, how we mourn when we've lost someone, when someone has, has died and perished. And the Lord says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, there's two things I want you to understand about this, okay? One, this is already and not yet in the future tense. Two, it's passive. Do you understand why passive matters? Passive means it's not something you're going to do. It's something God does. If it was active, it would be something you do. If it's passive, it's something done to you. Are you guys tracking with me? The comfort that you're given is something done to you. It's something God does to you. It's something that God is promising to bring. And this is Jesus who is quoting out of the same book of Isaiah that he quoted in in Luke, just before he came to the Galilee to begin his ministry in the Galilee. He quotes from Isaiah 61. 
This is from verses 2 and 3. So we won't look at the first part that Jesus read. Uh, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Listen, to comfort all who mourn. Now because of the distinction that's made there, I'm not saying we shouldn't mourn over our sin. Look, I mourn over, if you have a, a right view of your sin, it will, it will make you mourn. I mourn over my sin. But it's bigger than that. It's just the heartbrokenness of life. He says, I will comfort all who mourn. How many is that? So he says, I'm going to comfort to, I'm going to come to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those that mourn in Zion, those who are mourning in Jerusalem, who are standing in a heap of ashes, throwing ashes upon themselves and crying out because they feel like God's not with them and he's not here for me and what's going on and why are all these things happening to me? And some of that may be related to their sin. But I don't think that's the focus of what he's talking about. I think the focus of what he's talking about are those, blessed are those who understand they're destitute in spirit, they need a Savior. Blessed are those who are mourning, their hearts are broken, life is tearing them up, they feel like they're losing everything, and God's promise is, I will comfort you. And it's, a future promise. There's a sense that we can hold on to today. Because having a relationship with Jesus Christ means that he will bring comfort into our lives. We'll read that scripture here in just a moment. But there will be the fullness of it also that we'll see as a result. In Psalms 126 verse 5 it says, Those who sow in tears will reap in shouts of joy. You ever, when you're going through your walk with Christ, your relationship with Jesus, and life is just, but you're out there doing it anyway, you don't feel like doing it? The Bible says it's like sowing in tears. Sowing in tears. For the farmer, it was you when you had your when you harvested there was a section of your harvest that went to the lord there's a section of that harvest that you're going to eat but you have to set aside some so there'll be a harvest the next year and the hope is i set aside enough and it's going to be okay and all this is going to work out and so you go out in fear sowing in tears but when are your tears turned to joy when you bring in the harvest We in this world are sowing in tears, but there will be a day we will reap the harvest in joy. We see his face. He goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, but he will come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him, <coughs> bringing the harvest. Sowing in tears, prayer, praying for the lost, praying for your children who are, are lost, praying for your friends and family and whatever, and you're going through the hardships of life and the heartbreaks of life. And we've had people that were snatched away from us out of, in the middle of nothing, we can't, we don't understand. Why did that happen? Or how is this ever going to be redeemed? How can I ever, how, how will I ever laugh again? How am I ever going to smile again? And the Lord is saying, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9 says, And it is, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So see... What earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourself with indignation, with what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment at every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. The sorrows and the pain and the hurt, there's two types of grief we can feel. One grief is a despair where we despair of all things, and the other is a godly sorrow. And the Bible teaches us a godly sorrow drives us to repentance. Repentance means a change of my direction, the way I think. Sometimes our sorrow is so deep and so impactful that it's hard for us. We find ourselves in a place of despairing and want to throw everything out. But the promise that Jesus gives for his disciples is, yes, you will mourn, but you shall be comforted. Godly sorrow will lead to repentance and God will breathe comfort to your soul. And then he will call on you to comfort others with the comfort for which you have been comforted. Long time ago, I was a young man and I had all the answers. I was sitting at a board meeting around a circle and somebody walked up and handed me a note. And the note said that a friend of mine who my wife and I had been counseling, he and his wife, just ran over his baby. So hospital wasn't very far away, so we went over to the hospital. So I'm in the room with the baby. The baby's on the table surrounded by doctors and nurses and hoses and wires and everything you can imagine. And a mom... And a dad who you could pour in a bucket. But you want to know what mourning looks like. You should have been in that room. And they couldn't save the baby. So she, beautiful little baby girl, went to heaven. And mom and dad went to hell. They had to live through it and with it. And it's hard. At the funeral of that little baby, <clears throat> there were several people who, the family asked me to share the gospel. There were several people who came forward to rededicate their lives or to proclaim Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so the family was pulling some... Uh, Value, you know how you do, right? You're looking for something to hold on to. Where's the good? So we went over to their house for reception, and while I'm at the reception, my phone rings, and a kid who played football for me just got in a motorcycle accident. Family and all the people are gathered over at the hospital. So we went over to the hospital, and I told the family, I'm sorry, you know, Jake's just been in a motorcycle accident, and I don't know how he is, but we're going to head over to the hospital. So we get to the hospital, and they, he, he hit his chest on a rock, dirt bike 
riding, and he dies. They can't stop the bleeding. Tears a aorta, I think, was torn by a sliver from his sternum. And that's the one, you guys, if you've heard me tell the story before, the father stood in the middle of the room of all these people wailing, and he lifted his hands and he praised God for the time he had with his son. It was beautiful. The next part of that story is what happened in that room when the mom and dad from the baby came in. Nobody could comfort the mom and dad who just lost their adult son like the mom and dad who just buried their baby. They took the comfort God gave them and they gave it to another. And the sorrow of this world is lessened when we allow God to comfort us with the comfort he gives. Is it the final comfort? No. You know when the final comfort is? You know why it's future? Because there's going to be a day when the Lord walks over to us. And he puts his hand on our cheek. Just like this. And with the thumbs of the creator who made the world... He's going to wipe away every tear. In that moment, all the sorrow in your heart that you still try to function with today, in that moment, it will all be gone. And Jesus will look in your eyes and say, See, I make all things new. That's why it's future. So blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comfort. God's comfort will come upon them. And then God, according to 2 Corinthians 1, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Revelation 21.4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There will Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. See, I have made all things new. So we look at this <clears throat> section of Scripture. We look at what the Lord has for us. And we'll, we'll look at five next week. As we look at it, this is Jesus' manifesto from the Messiah. This is his design of discipleship. This is the things that his disciples see, may recognize, Oh Lord, I I need you. I need you so that I can be a comfort to those who mourn. Lord, I need you so that that you can establish within me, uh, making me the man I need to be because I am destitute. I don't have anything I'm bringing to the pile. Uh, Early in the book of Numbers, God made a donkey talk. He don't need us. I guarantee that donkey was more obedient. But we come to him with our arms lifted high. That's, that's why 
When I worship, sometimes when I worship, I lift my arms up. All I'm saying is, I need you, Dad. I need you. So when we mourn, when we sorrow, please know God wants to be your comfort. And it won't ever take all the pain. But it will give you hope. See, the Bible declares that we do not sorrow as those who have no hope. We have a hope. Our hope is Jesus Christ. Our hope is the promise that He gave us in Revelation that He's going to make all things new. That He's going to take all the brokenness and the pain and the sorrow of the things done to us or around us that we've had to endure. And He's going to purge it all. In the meantime, He says, I'll give you enough for now. So you can help one another. And you can look forward to the day when we will see it all. We'll see it all together in that place. We'll all sing the hymn of heaven together, right? We will be around the throne in Revelation chapter 5 saying to the Lamb who was slain, You are worthy. For all that you have given me. Amen. Why don't you stand with me. Let's pray. Father God. We are so thankful. For the truth. That your word declares. And I am thankful. For the promises that you give. But you. Challenge us through the mirror. Of your word. To see our own reflection in your word. And when I see that reflection, Lord, it ought to drive me to my knees like the tax collector and sinner who beat his breast and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Lord, you'll save me there. Mine will be the kingdom of God. But I know in my life, as I move forward in that moment, I, I, times of intense mourning will come. But the Bible promises us that there will be mourning. We will enter into times of sorrow in the evening. But with the dawning of the sun, there will be joy. Joy in the morning. There will be a day when I see your face that you will bring an end to all that pain. But until then, you are the God of all comfort. I hold fast to the promise of your word. I have faith. I trust you that you're going to do what your word says you are going to do. And I will turn the pain of the day to an opportunity to minister to another. For whom only I have like to share. God, I just pray that we would hear your words the upcoming weeks. The things that you're going to declare to us throughout this Sermon on the Mount. That we would say, man, Lord, I, I want to have eyes that see like your disciples gathered around you. 
I want to recognize your truth throughout your word. I want to hold fast to that truth and, and see all of these things being worked out in my life. We are just scratching the surface of an ocean that depths go beyond our wildest imagination. You are the God of all wonder. You are the God who is able. You are the God in which I place my trust. You are my Savior, my King. May you be glorified in this place as our eyes are turned to you in Jesus' name.